This is Gareth Southgate, and this is the Three Lions Podcast. Hello, and welcome to another Three Lions Podcast. An entertaining, informative, educational, I'll let you be the judge of that. It is an independent England football supporters podcast. Hi there, my name is Russell Osborne and it is one where I try and look at our national football team. One where I try and preview games coming up, review recent games gone by, talk to fans who have stories to tell. We'll learn about previous managers of the Three Lions or we'll delve into the past. And that is the case of this episode. We are looking at a tournament from the 80s. But more about that in a moment. Let me just tell you, all previous episodes can be found at 3lionspodcast.com or your usual podcast provider, the likes of iTunes, Spotify, Amazon. It's also on YouTube too. Uh, you can subscribe there and you won't miss an episode. On the social media front, you can find the podcast on the likes of Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Just search Three Lions Podcast. It'll come up. I guarantee it. Now, already this year, we have started our World Cup series. We've looked at Qatar. We've learned more about Ron Greenwood, the fourth full-time manager of our Three Lions. And it really does cover many aspects. And coming your way very soon, we will be looking at the Lionesses as they get ready for the Arnold Clark Cup. If you're a new listener, it's good to have you along. If you're a regular, welcome as always. I hope you're going to enjoy this one. Summer tournaments, and by that I mean invitational ones, not World Cups or Euros. Friendly affairs. And with constant qualification matches or the recent introduction of the Nations League, we don't seem to have them so much now. Perhaps it's for the best. But from the mid-80s to the mid-noughties, there were a few that England either hosted or were invited to. We've only really covered one of these before. Le Tournoi de France. Remember that one? Held back in 1997. If you didn't catch it, you can listen to it, uh, or you can listen to it again, should you want to. As I say, head to 3 com. It is episode 136, and I spoke with Mark Raven about that one. But before that, and probably the start of them all, if you exclude the home international championships, which I guess is an episode for another day, was the Rouse Cup, a summer tournament that had a short-lived life and will probably only be remembered by those of a certain vintage. May not have had the most exciting of games, but they were competitive games. Players earned caps for their participation. And without it, John Fashionu would never have been capped. So perhaps it does deserve a little bit more recognition. So let's start at the beginning. How, who, what, when... I mentioned the home international championships as they were quite important to the story of the Rouse Cup. Many England fans will be aware of England's very first game, 
as a goalless draw away to Scotland in 1872. Now these games continued on a regular basis and as did games against Ireland and Wales before a competition involving them all began back in 1884. The Home International Championships or the British Championships. There would be a hundred years of this competition up until season 1983-84 which would be the 89th and last edition before England announced they were to pull out. Shortly afterwards, they announced that they would be playing just Scotland on an annual basis. Wales and Northern Ireland were rightly aggrieved. So the Rouse Cup was born, named after Sir Stanley Rouse, an Englishman born in April 1895 in East Suffolk. He became an amateur goalkeeper, before injury stopped him moving on. He then moved to refereeing, where his highlight was being made the man in the middle of the 1934 FA Cup final between Manchester City and Portsmouth. Four years later, he would make another contribution to the game by rewriting the laws of the game, making them easier to understand and follow. And he would move up within the echelons of the game Secretary of the FA, then joining the Executive Committee and becoming Vice-Chairman of UEFA. Before the pinnacle, he became the sixth President of FIFA in 1961, a position he would hold until 1974. The Rouse Cup was a tribute to Stanley. The trophy itself was quite a dumpy little thing, gold in colour, Two handles either side with a lid and a plinth and some ornate decoration on it along with Rouse Cup inscribed onto it. Best thing I can compare it to is the love child of the Rugby World Cup trophy and the Wimbledon Men's Singles Trophy. However, there is more to it. A competition perhaps not as familiar to many listeners of this podcast is the Brass Band World Championships, a competition that had a short life between 1968 and 1971. The trophy for that was 18.5 inches high and 17.5 inches wide. This, rather than being gold, was gilded silver. The Brass Band World Championships ended in 1971 and the trophy disappeared too. The thing is, it appears to be exactly the same as the Rouse Cup. Could a former brass band trophy have been recommissioned as a football trophy? (laughs) Something we'll probably never know. So those home internationals ended in 1984 and the Rouse Cup began the following year. The first two editions were just one-off matches before another team was introduced from 1987. So let's start. 1985, the 25th of May, Hampden Park, Glasgow, Scotland. Kickoff, 3pm. Initially, it was due to be played at Wembley, but the date coincided with an English bank holiday weekend in London and fears were raised about it. So the venue was switched. It wasn't an ideal time in the calendar, 
as England had played Finland away three days before in a World Cup qualifier, and Scotland, well, they would be away in Iceland three days later. Now, for England, there would be no Liverpool players as they were preparing for their European Cup final against Juventus in Heysel. And the champions Everton were concluding their league season, playing a rearranged league match. And for football in general, 1985 just wasn't a pleasant time. I mentioned Heysel, but also the Bradford fire had only happened some 14 days earlier. But the game went ahead, and England, managed by Bobby Robson, took to Hamden and started with the following. Peter Shilton in goal from Southampton. Viv Anderson, Arsenal. Kenny Sansom, Arsenal. As Terry Fenwick from QPR. Terry Butcher, who was at Ipswich. Glenn Hoddle of Tottenham Hotspur. Ray Wilkins, AC Milan. Brian Robson, captain from Manchester United. Trevor Francis of Sampdoria. Mark Haightley of AC Milan. And John Barnes of Watford. Chris Waddle of Tottenham would replace John Barnes and Gary Lineker of Leicester City would replace Glenn Hoddle, both of those in the second half. Our goalkeeper Gary Bailey of Manchester United, Dave Watson of Norwich and Kerry Dixon of Chelsea would remain unused substitutes. On a wet Glaswegian day, Dundee United's Richard Goff would head the winner in front of 66,000 coming in unmarked and rising above Sansom and looping it over Shilton. This is Strachan. And it's Goff. And it was turned on again by McLeish. Here's Jim Betts. Scotland would take the first match. The trophy being presented by Sir Stanley Rouse on the Hampden pitch to a Scottish side, some of whom had swapped shirts with England. And the photos of this day show Richard Goff, Roy Aitken and Steve Archibald wearing the Three Lions white shirt in their celebrations. Different times. So Graham Sooners, a proud captain as he comes forward to receive the cup from the man after whom it is named, Sir Stanley Rouse. Fast forward a year. Wednesday, the 23rd of April, 1986. St George's Day, of course. This time, it was Wembley Stadium. Again, a similar-sized crowd, 68,000, many descending from north of the border. And it was being played earlier as both had qualified for the Mexico World Cup to be played a couple of months later. Bobby Robson was once again in charge of England. However, in the Scottish dugout was a certain Alex Ferguson, the then manager of Aberdeen. He was in temporary charge of the Scots following the untimely death of Jock Steen. Ferguson would oversee Scotland at the Mexico World Cup, 
before being appointed manager of Manchester United. This time, though, it would be England who would triumph, avenging the defeat from the previous year. And it would also be Ferguson's first defeat as Scotland manager. Now, England's starting line-up this time consisted of Peter Shilton in goal of Southampton, Gary Stevens of Everton, Kenny Sansom of Arsenal, Glenn Hoddle, Tottenham, Dave Watson, Norwich, Terry Butcher, Ipswich Town, Steve Hodge of Aston Villa, Trevor Francis, Sampdoria, Mark Haightley, AC Milan, Ray Wilkins, also of AC Milan, and he had the captain's armband that day, and Chris Waddle, Tottenham Hotspur. And the second half, Peter Reid of Everton would replace captain Ray Wilkins, and Tottenham's Gary Stevens would take the place of Steve Hodge. Chris Woods of Norwich, Trevor Stevens of Everton and Kerry Dixon of Chelsea remained unused. And the Scotland team would have four players currently playing in the English First Division at the time. Steve Nicholl of Liverpool, David Speedy of Chelsea, Charlie Nicholas of Arsenal and Pat Nevin who was also at Chelsea. But it was England who went into half-time in the lead thanks to goals from Terry Butcher and Glenn Hoddle. It's a clip from Hoddle. Met by Goff. Here's Hodge. And Butcher! Against the run of play, Terry Butcher gives England the lead. Here's one. Sansom ahead of him and in space. Well hit and Ruff lost it. The second half saw Scotland pick up the pace and Graham Souness would score from the spot. Past Butcher, who caught him, and Scotland have a penalty. A great chance to get back in the game here with Souness, who scores. But it wasn't enough, as England held on to pick up the trophy. And it would be the last time the trophy would be contested by just two teams. That's because in 1987, Brazil were invited to join the tournament, which meant that it would now have three matches, each team playing each other once. It kicked off under the Wembley lights on the 19th of May, in a match between England and Brazil. Brazil, clearly a big draw, as Wembley was packed to the rafters with 92,000 inside. Now, unlike the Brazil teams that we know now, where the majority of the players ply their trade in Europe, here, only one player, Captain Geraldo, he only played outside of Brazil. By contrast, England had three players playing outside of England. And that team that day was Peter Shilton in goal from Southampton, Gary Stevens of Everton, Stuart Pearce from Nottingham Forest, who was making his debut and also picking up a yellow card in his own customary way. Tony Adams of Arsenal, Terry Butcher, who was now at Rangers, Peter Reid of Everton, Brian Robson was back, of course, from Manchester United. He was captain. Chris Waddle of Tottenham Hotspur. Gary Lineker was now at Barcelona. Peter Beardsley of Newcastle United and John Barnes of Watford. And in the second half, Mark Haightley, from AC Milan replaced Lineker. 
but it would be Lineker who opened the scoring on 35 minutes as he dived into score with his head inside the six-yard box from across from Peter Beardsley. That lead would last less than a minute as Mirandinha of Palmeiras equalised. And Mirandinha, he would shortly join Newcastle United. In fact, the equalising goal came so quickly, Kevin Keegan was still talking about England's goal. Butcher, straight forward with the header. Pierce, straight forward with the pass to Reed. Simple ball this time to Robson. Now finding Beardsley. And on this evening's form, nobody better to find. Look at that for acceleration, just in! The game would end one apiece, giving both teams a point each. ITV was showing the game on TV, and none other than Argentina's Diego Maradona joined host Nick Owen in the Wembley studio, when Maradona's compatriot Ozzy Ardiles would be doing the translating. Nick Owen done his very best to prod Maradona on his hand of God from the previous year, to which he just sat there and smiled. The next game was the Scotland-England match on the 23rd of May. Played up at Hamden, frankly, it wasn't the best game between the two sides. England made five changes from that opening game against Brazil. Rangers' Chris Woods came in for Shilton. Southampton's Mark Wright in for Tony Adams. Tottenham's Glenn Hoddle in for Peter Reid. Steve Hodge, also of Tottenham, replaced John Barnes. Milan's Mark Haightley started this time in place of Lineker. And England made no changes throughout the game. Whilst Scotland had fielded players playing in England in previous meetings between the two, this game featured two England players playing for Glasgow Rangers. I mentioned goalkeeper Chris Woods, but now Terry Butcher had moved from Ipswich to Rangers. The game ended goalless. England had now two points on the board, equal with Brazil, as back then it was only two points for a win. Scotland could win the competition again, should they beat the Brazilians when they met them for only the seventh time? It wasn't to be, as two second-half goals from Rai and Valdo meant that Brazil would be the first overseas victors of the Rouse Cup. And just as Scotland had done in the first time around, Brazil, they were pictured celebrating whilst in opposition shirts. Douglas and Geraldo were in the rampant lion and navy blue of Scotland different times. Now I assume that Brazil didn't take the trophy back on the plane to Rio and they left it behind for the following edition which was played in May of 1988. 
It would be a warm-up tournament for England, who would be heading to West Germany for the European Championships. But replacing Brazil was Colombia, who were warming up for their own continents, Copper America, where they would go on to take third place. Colombia would come to the tournament with some faces that would become familiar in a few years' time at the Italy 1990 World Cup. But this was the first opportunity to see the likes of René Aguita, André Escobar and Carlos Valderrama, known for his big, frizzly, orangey-blonde hair. Colombia would come to Wembley seven years later, where supporters were treated to Aguita's famous scorpion kick. The first game of the tournament saw Scotland and Colombia play out a goalless draw at Hampden, in front of only 20,000. Four days later, Scotland made the journey down to England, where a Peter Beardsley 12th-minute goal would be the only separation between the sides. Beardsley. Dummy. Beardsley gets it back from Barnes. Beardsley again! England ahead. A smile of delight from the little Liverpool player. The team that day, Peter Shilton, who had moved from Southampton. He was now at Derby County and he would be keeping his 50th England clean sheet this day. Gary Stevens of Everton, Kenny Sansom of Arsenal, Neil Webb of Nottingham Forest, Dave Watson of Everton, Tony Adams of Arsenal, Brian Robson, captain of Manchester United, Trevor Stephen of Everton, Peter Beardsley of Liverpool, Gary Lineker of Barcelona, and John Barnes of Liverpool. Tottenham's Chris Waddle replaced Trevor Stephen in the second half, Whilst the game was won by England, there was a battle off the pitch. Numerous arrests were made on the day of the game as fans fought with each other. This was to be the first nail in the coffin of the Rouse Cup. As then FA chairman Bert Millichip was quoted as saying, It makes one wonder if the match is worthwhile. It was the first time the match between the two sides had been played on a Saturday since 1981. So after two games, England had two points, Colombia won and Scotland won, but they had played both their matches. And the last game of the series took place on the 24th of May. While 70,000 had watched the old enemy clash, Wembley only catered for 25,000 this time. Perhaps a shame, given that it was Colombia's first time at Wembley. Again, Perhaps this was the beginning of the end for the Rouse Cup. But a win or draw would see England win the trophy again. They would wear away red shirts, whilst Colombia wore their traditional bright yellow. Gary Lineker scored the opener on 22 minutes, a header from a Chris Waddle cross, only for Escobar to equalise in the second half. Alvarez, oh, a bit elaborate there. This is Robson, well played. Waddle... Lineker, oh yes it's there, super goal by Gary Lineker, Chris Waddle the provider, that's terrific stuff from England's attack, it happened so quickly, Colombia didn't know what had hit them, the ball swung in and Lineker's flick header off the inside of the post and England are in front, Escobar and Pereira forward, And there's Escobar, oh, against the bar and in! And Escobar 
Escobar would sadly be murdered in 1994 following an own goal in the USA World Cup. Viv Anderson would replace Gary Stevens in defence, Steve McMahon for Neil Webb, Mark Wright for Dave Watson, Chris Waddle for Trevor Stephen, and Glenn Hoddle and Mark Haightley, both of Monaco in France, were used as second-half substitutes. And a draw meant England topped the three-team group with three points. Colombia came second with two, and Scotland finished third and bottom with one point. And just as players from Scotland and Brazil had been seen in perhaps unfamiliar colours as they swapped shirts with opposition players in previous games, England now done the same following the final whistle against Colombia. And Bobby Robson, well, he wasn't happy about it. The England manager looks a little bit uh, aggrieved there that one or two players have exchanged shirts. He won't want to see them going up looking tatty. And uh, he's none too pleased about that, Bobby Robson. And I have to say... As a traditionalist, I agree with him. Bobby, at the end, you got a little bit annoyed with some of the players swapping shirts before the presentation. Yes. Oh, that's just one of those little things, you know. I mean, I don't like England players to swap England shirts on the pitch. And I don't like England players going up the rostrum to pick up a medal in a foreign shirt. That's as simple as that. You keep your own shirt on and you exchange shirts in the dressing room. They know the procedure. They have to stick to it. Only three goals were scored in the tournament, and two of those were for England. Brian Robson would climb those famous 39 old steps to raise the trophy to those that remained inside of Wembley. 1989, the final instalment, and it really was the end. England, well, they had had an atrocious European Championships the year previous. Interest was low and attendances were poor. Once again, it was England and Scotland, and once again, it was another South American opposition. Argentina were approached, but they declined. So Chile were drafted in. Like 1985, 1989 was a poor year for English domestic football. The Hillsborough tragedy had only happened about six weeks before, and this caused a knock-on effect for the season and Liverpool in particular. And the 89 season is famous also for its climax in a match between Liverpool and Arsenal, which took place midway through this competition. And because of this, England didn't pick any players from either side. The tournament began on the 23rd of May at Wembley in a match between England and Chile. Although a transport strike didn't help matters, with only 15,000 interested enough to attend. But it would be an all-time low for England at Wembley. Many would probably have wished that they hadn't bothered, as the game finished nil-nil. This would be the third goalless draw in the competition's history, and the fifth draw in the 11 games the Rouse Cup gave us. But I did mention John Fashionu right at the very beginning, and I may mock the competition, but without it, the Wimbledon striker, known for his physicality, he wouldn't have got his chance. And in fairness, he was probably only in because of the absence of Liverpool players, Beardsley and Barnes, Alan Smith of Arsenal too. But the team to face Chile that day was Peter Shilton of Derby County, Paul Parker of QPR, Stuart Pearce, 
Neil Webb and Des Walker, all of Nottingham Forest, Terry Butcher of Rangers, Brian Robson once again captain from Manchester United, Paul Gascoigne in what would be his first start in an England shirt, of course of Tottenham at the time, Nigel Clough made up the fourth player from Nottingham Forest, John Fashionu of Wimbledon, Chris Waddle of Tottenham Hotspur. Everton's Tony Cotty would replace Fashionu. And a point shared at Wembley in a fairly non-eventful game, although one where Chile were particularly difficult to break down. The next fixture was the Scotland-England match. Played at Hamden on the 27th of May, the day after Arsenal had famously won the league title at Anfield in the last minute. Many England fans had attended both that game and then continued up to Glasgow. It was also the day following the passing of former England manager Don Revy. Sadly, there were no black armbands worn in his honour, or a moment's silence, despite what many may have thought of the former manager. It would be the English that once again came away happy in a game notable for a number of reasons. And whilst there was no official England away support, as the English FA had declined the offer of tickets from Scotland. There was a visible section, though, in view, who had bought through other means. But once again, though, off-the-field trouble reared its head, as there was more fighting witnessed between rival fans. On the pitch, Rangers' Gary Stevens came in for Paul Parker. Paul Gascoigne made way for Trevor Stevens, also of Rangers. And up front, Tony Cotty started in his last of seven England appearances in the place of Nigel Clough. And one of those notable moments involved Peter Shilton, who wore a Scotland goalkeeper's jersey, as the BBC's Barry Davis explains here. And Peter Shilton wearing a Scottish jersey, because the only one that uh, England brought up was blue, and uh, obviously he couldn't play in that. And Tottenham's Chris Waddle along with two other Scots, Roy Aitken and Alex McLeish, were the only players to take part in all eight games of the Rouse Cup. And it was Waddle who opened the scoring with a diving header. It's curling, that's a great goal by Chris Waddle. Oh, that's a lovely goal by Waddle. He can put that in his collection, all right. England have the lead after 20 minutes. Chris Waddle's sixth goal for his country and he really met that with the meat of his forehead Gazza would later come on as a sub as would Wolves' Steve Ball who had only just gained promotion from the English third division to the second that's right, a selected England player playing in the lower leagues and he would make his own history by scoring on his debut and cementing a victory ten minutes remaining Ball, and again! Right in the corner, what a start. Scoring on his debut. The man from the third division and Wolves, although they're about to lead there, scores on his first appearance at senior level. It would be the last time the two sides would meet until a certain fixture seven years later at Euro 96. 
England had four points in the bag with their two games played, with just the last game left between Scotland and Chile. Chile could win it with a victory and a margin of three clear goals. It wasn't to be, as Scotland recorded only their second ever win in the Rouse Cup, winning 2-0, thanks to goals from Alan McAnally and Murdo McLeod. It meant that they would finish second, and England, for the third time, would win the competition. But by then, the interest was gone, as only 9,000 Scots even bothered with the fixture. So Stanley Rouse passed away in July 1986. The tournament would struggle on for only another three years before it too passed away. And just to emphasise the lack of interest in it by this time, I'm not even sure the trophy was lifted. Obviously England had played their last game some days before. The players, well they were probably on a beach somewhere. In fairness it was never going to get a parade around the streets of Wembley. But in a way, the fact that there was no fanfare about winning it, sadly, summed it up. I'm sure many of us would love to see the return of the England-Scotland fixture on a more regular basis. And I'm sure our Scottish friends would say the same. But with more qualification games being played these days, and more club international games, it's looking extremely unlikely. And as for adding another team, I think those days are gone. Unless the unthinkable was to happen. That England fail to qualify for an international tournament and have a summer spare. I know what scenario I'd prefer to see. And the trophy? Well, that now lives in a cabinet at Wembley Stadium. If you're lucky enough to be in that area of the ground and you see it, you now know the story behind it. Thank you very much for listening. My name's been Russell Osborne. This has been the Three Lions podcast and the story of the Rouse Cup. And to round it off, I'd just like to add some honourable mentions to a couple of websites, englandmemories.com and englandfootballonline.com, from which I scoured a fair bit gleaming information for this. Uh, they are both great sites and well worth some of your time if you're looking for some England reading material. Don't forget you can follow the podcast on all various social media channels, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Give it a search, give it a follow, give it a review on the likes of iTunes would be most appreciated. In the meantime, I'll be back with you for another episode of England-related content. Cheers! Cheers!